I am excited to begin a new sermon series with you in our study of Ruth, and we're going to be in Ruth chapter 1 tonight, and I think this will be just a short four-part series, and we'll look at some really great things that come out of this book. I think it's worth uh, beginning by just asking the question, well, why would we study th- this book? I mean, the, you know, the, the obvious answer is, well, it's the Word of God, we need to. Uh, but there's really a lot of great concepts that uh, are found in the book. And though it is really short, there are so many great themes that I want to kind of introduce to you as we begin our study that you would have your eye open to these things uh, as we study each week through through this, this great book. Uh, one of the most obvious that I think people are the most aware of is this biblical love story that is uh, presented in the book of Ruth that, that shows a, a great picture of true sacrificial uh, love. Uh, you also get to see a great portrait of what uh, biblical manhood and womanhood look like in some of the characters that we're going to look at uh, as we move through this narrative uh, in, in studying it. One of the curious things as well is, is that you will deal with even with some issues of racism because we're going to deal with the, the relationship of Israel to Moab and is very much intertwined together about the, the dealings that these two nations have uh, and how they're going to come together in this and regarding God's law and that is pretty fascinating. So we'll keep our eye open for that uh, in our studies as well. One of the great things that comes out of it is is this concept of the remnant as well, is that here we're going to get to see uh, even the faithful of God during some miserable times that are doing things that God has called uh, his people to do. Tonight in particular, we'll get to look at some things about what true risk-taking devotion and true love look like. And, and the two biggest things that, that arc as themes throughout uh, this book is one of the things you get to see is the sovereignty of God. In particular, it was very tempting to call this book uh, a study about the providence of God because it is going to answer uh, an important question about If we are able to trust God and still love God, even though we feel that we have been afflicted by God and are going through immense suffering and immense difficulties, uh, how do we handle that? And and that's what this book definitely looks at, as this this book centers very much, though named Ruth, very much about Naomi. We're going to see that, that she's ultimately the main character of the story and following her uh, through these four four chapters and it answers this question about uh, trusting God and loving God even though there's pain in our lives and finally the grand finale of the book that you also may be aware of is that God is glorified in this book as there's a picture of Christ and His coming that's also seen in it. So what often can be a neglected book and seemingly short and insignificant book has some very very important theological concepts in it, and it is going to lay the groundwork for us in our future study. We're going to look at the book of Job after we finish Ruth, and this kind of lays the groundwork to that, because this book is about suffering and going through difficulty and seeing God uh, through those things. Uh, let's begin then in, in the book of Ruth, and let's just read the first first verse of the first chapter, because this first sentence really sets the tone for everything that we're going to look at in the book. So Ruth 1 verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled, 
There was a famine in the land, and a man from Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. That is an extraordinarily loaded opening uh, to this book that we need to spend some, some time on. You'll notice that it begins with saying, in the days of the judges, and that is a very loaded declaration. We did quite a bit of study in the book of Judges uh, about the beginning of this year, end of last year, something like that. And we saw in our study of the days of the judges that this is a terrible time. This is a time of immense wickedness. It is a time of unfaithfulness. It is truly a hopeless time. As we read the story of the of the book of Judges, you are seeing a continual moral decline in the people of Israel as they get worse and worse until we get to this horrible scene at toward the end of the book where we have this Gibeah rape and we have a dismemberment and body parts being sent throughout the cities. It becomes a horrible time in, in the days of the judges. And so to remind you of some of the graphic things and horrors that we read about in the in the book of Judges, remember that now this book is being set during that time frame. And remember how that book concluded. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And so this is not a good time. This is not a favorable time. This is not a time when you went around and you found an awful lot of godly people. You read about the book of Judges. That's not what you have. It is a dangerous time. It is immoral, immorality is running rampant. And the people of God are not behaving like the people of God. And that's why God continues to subjugate them by the various nations around. And are oppressing them for decades and decades And why God has been raising up these leaders after a time is because they've been so wicked. They're awful. And so imagine that time frame as we begin the the book of Ruth. The second thing that we're told for us there in verse 1 is that there is a famine in the land. And that is not a point of information. When you had famines in the Old Testament regarding the people of Israel, that was a declaration of God's wrath and God's judgment against them. That God had made some promises to Israel that if they disobeyed, that's exactly what they were going to experience. But if they obeyed the commands of the Lord, then they would not have that problem. Leviticus 26 verse 3, if you walk in my statutes and obey my commandments and do them, then I will give you your rains in their season and the land shall yield its increase and the trees of the field shall yield their fruit. If you do what I command, God says, you won't have to worry about the rain. You won't have to worry about your crop and produce. It's all going to be provided for you by God. Similarly, in Deuteronomy 28 and verse 20, the Lord will send on you curses, confusion and frustration in all that you undertake to do until you are destroyed and perish quickly on account of the evil of your deeds because you have forsaken me. The Lord will make a pestilence stick to you until he has consumed you off the land that you are entering to take possession of it. The Lord will strike you with wasting disease and with fever, inflammation and fiery heat and with drought and with blight and with mildew. They shall pursue you until you perish. The heavens over your head shall be bronze and the earth underneath shall be iron. The Lord will make the rain on your land powder from heaven. Dust shall come down on you until you are destroyed. 
And so remember in the curses, God said, I'll shut up the sky. The ground will be as hard as iron and you won't be able to grow a thing and you'll endure a famine. So it is not by just happen chance that the book of Ruth opens with this declaration that there is a a famine. And what is particularly interesting about that statement is you will notice that we are told that we have a famine in the land in verse one. And we have a man here from Bethlehem. Now, as we go through not only this chapter, but in the book as well, these names are going to be meaningful. And, and, and the book is using these names as a reference to understand more of this narrative as it unfolds. The name for Bethlehem means house of bread. So consider what is being stated here is that in the days of the judges, there's no bread in the house of bread. That's what's happened right here. God is doing something. The place that was to be rich with food as God would provide when they would obey him is now empty. It is desolate. There is no food. There is no bread. The famine has struck this land. And it's with that then that we are told something else in verse 1. It says, this man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he, his wife, and his two sons. This also sets the stage by moving to Moab. One of the things that we observed in our study of Genesis is God over and over again was telling them, don't leave the promised land. And interesting how the temptation to leave the promised land always came with famine. Abraham leaves the promised land by famine. Goes to Egypt, God says, sends him back, back to the promised land. Isaac nearly does the same thing. He goes to Gerar, and so he kind of stays in the land. He's at least in Palestine, and he's over in the land of the Philistines, and he goes there because of famine. If you remember, Jacob now learns that message because there's a famine. And he doesn't move to Egypt. He keeps sending his sons down. And Joseph says, come on down. And it actually takes God telling Jacob, yeah, go ahead and go down. He get you don't leave the promised land. Even if there's a famine, you don't leave the promised land because the point was going to be that God would provide. And so here you have this scene of the famine hits and they're leaving. And what would seem like a logical conclusion to do, well, let's go and find a place to live. You've left the promised land and that's not what you were supposed to do. To add insult to injury, they moved to Moab. If you remember in the days of the judges, the people of Moab are one of the great enemies of Israel at this time. In particular, in chapter 3, verses 12 through 14, you have more than a decade of time where the people of Israel are being oppressed. It is under Ehud that he comes to deliver and save the day. The Moabites are oppressing and oppressing and oppressing Israel. And so you go to almost enemy territory, if you will, and live in the land of the Moabites, the ones who have been subjugating the people of Israel all this time. And so just this very first verse about it being the days of the judges and there being a famine and moving to Moab tells us an awful lot of that's going on about this scene, that this is a very dark time. This appears to be a hopeless situation. And we see then a family that appears to not be going in the right direction. That comes together all the more as we move into now verses two through five, because we're going to notice now this tragedy unfold. Verse 2, 
The name of the man was Elimelech, and his and the name of his wife was Naomi, and the name of the two sons was Malhon and Kilion. They were uh, Ephrathites from Bethlehem in in Judah, and they went to the country of Moab and remained there. Interesting about the names again. So we begin with Naomi's husband, and his name is Elimelech, which means my God is king. And so the man whose name is my God is king has left the promised land and is going to Moab. And so you're getting again a coloring of what is happening in the story. And then notice how this unfolds as Elimelech and Naomi and the two sons, they move now to Moab. Verse 4 tells us they took Moabite wives and the name of one was Orpah and the other uh, and the name of the other was Ruth and they lived there about 10 years and both Mahon and and Kilian died so that the woman was left without her two sons and without her husband. And so you have then this massive tragedy and massive loss. Verse 3 tells us Elimelech dies while they're in Moab. And then verse 5 tells us that her two sons also die when they are in Moab. To make matters worse, you will notice that we're told there that they're in the land for 10 years. And we have these two sons with these wives. And yet there are no children that are born, which is another problem to what the story is going to show us is that we've lost lost the husband, we've lost the two boys, and there are no children then to take care of, of, of Ruth or of Naomi or, or Orpah. And so what is going to happen with that? And the reason why we can underline the fact of this barrenness is because the very end of the book is going to highlight when a child is born by saying, the Lord enabled her to conceive. And so it's going to go out of its way at the end of the book and say, now God is blessing. But right here, we don't have that. Ten years of of a time in Moab, no children. And so it is a hopeless, dark time. And Naomi then is left in a very serious predicament. It's hard for us to get our minds around really the death sentence that just about has befallen Naomi at this point. You now have no husband to take care of you and your two sons who would be next in line now to take care of you. They have also died and you have no children to take care of you at this point. And it wasn't like you were going to go down to Walmart and go get a job and now be a greeter and take care of yourself all the rest of your days. You are desolate. You are empty. You have lost everything. And that is what sets the table now for the beginning of the account is seeing all this backdrop of all that has happened that we in the, the days of wickedness and morality, in the days of the judges, there's a famine in the land as God is striking the people because of their wickedness. The, this family, uh, Lemelech now moves his wife and moves his sons to Moab. And Moab is not the promised land. It's the very enemies of Israel. He dies. The two sons die. It just is tragedy all the way around. And so in verse 6. Then she arose, speaking of Naomi and her daughters-in-law, to return from the country of Moab. For she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. This is extremely striking now. 
So now she is now in Moab, and I don't think it's fair to blame her necessarily for being in Moab. I don't know if she had a say in their moving or not, or if Elimelech said, hey, we're going regardless, or if this was a family decision, and all four of them raised their hand and said, yeah, we're all going to Moab. So we can't know for certain uh, where she stood on all of this, but this is her predicament. Now she's in Moab, and notice the very next thing that happens is God now comes along, and he is now providing for Israel. The very thing that God had said about those famines is just rely upon me and trust in me and I'm going to take care of you. And now she's over here in Moab and she hears that God did provide for her, his, his people. And so verse 6 says she heard from the fields of Moab that God had visited his people and had given them food. And so we see then because of that verse 7 so she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters in laws and they went on their way to return to the land of Judah. If you want a key word for this chapter, it is return. You will see return or something synonymous to the idea of return stated almost in every sentence throughout this paragraph. And this again underlines the idea that they are in the wrong place. That they should not be in Moab and it is time to return to the land. It is time to return to God who is going to provide for them to put their trust in in that God. And so that's what then unfolds is verse seven says they're now going to go back to the land of Judah. They're going to return to this scene. Verse eight. But Naomi said to her two daughters in law, go return each of you to your, her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you find rest each of you in the house of your husband. And she kissed them and they lifted their voices and and wept. So here Naomi turns to Orpah and Ruth and says, you can't possibly go with me to Judah. You need to go back to your, your mother's homes and find a new husband who's going to take care of you because it's not going to go well for you to come with me back to Judah. You need to stay here in Moab and let me go back. Verse 10, and they said to her, no, we will return with you and to your people. But Naomi said, turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters, go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they are grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, it is exceedingly bitter for to me for your sake. that The hand of the Lord has gone out against me. And so she turns to them and says, you can't come back. Even if I were in the best case scenario, found a husband tomorrow and then immediately conceived. Are you going to wait for 17 to 20 years until these kids grow up and now you're going to marry them? Of course not. Go back to your homes. Go back to your land. There is no hope for you to come with me. And you can just see her saying, I appreciate what you did with my sons. I appreciate how your love for the dead and your devotion to me. But you need to go back. And I would like for you to underline something that we're going to note a few times tonight but in the verse 13 where she says there at the end for it's exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me 
Notice her perspective of how things are unfolding in her life. The hand of God, the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. And so she seems to be indicating that she understands these decisions have caused for her to be in a bad predicament. Whether she's right or wrong, we'll talk about that in a minute. But up to this point, that's her perspective about things. Verse 14, then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her and she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. So now here is Naomi telling Ruth, look, Orpah has done the right thing, has made the right choice. Go back and find a husband and go live in your mother's house and be taken care of and provided for. You can't go with me. But Ruth continues to cling in verse 16 and says, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you for where you go. I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. And so the response of Ruth is absolutely amazing. And it is truly a beautiful picture of what steadfast loyalty looks like. That she says, it doesn't matter. Whatever happens is going to happen. And she understands what she's saying. I mean, she says, where you die, I die. I mean, she understands going back to Israel is not going to be in her best interest. But... You know, wherever you live, that's where I'm going to live. And where you die, that's where I'm going to die. And, and your people, they're going to be my people. Your God is going to be my God. I am going to be completely on board with this. And what is amazing about this is when you put the backdrop of these are the days of the judges of intense wickedness and unfaithfulness to God, a lack of loyalty, a lack of devotion to God, you are seeing faithful love depicted from a Gentile toward Naomi, which is just staggering because you're not going to find that in the days of the judges of the people of God. That's not how they're behaving. They're not faithful to God in the slightest. And yet you see the words of Ruth to say, this is what, steadfast love looks like this is what it means that i will be with you from beginning to end wherever you go i'm going to go where you live i will live your people my people your god my god and where you die i will die and i'll be buried there and so i hope we can appreciate what she's saying because she's really giving of herself completely at this moment and saying Whatever happens to you is going to happen to me. And we're just going to go down together. It's just complete loyalty and love on her part. Verse 19. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? You can imagine now Naomi coming back to the hometown and it's been 10 years. And now there's kind of a buzz that is happening. Is this really the Naomi that we saw leave us all this time and now comes back into our town? And verse 20, she said to them, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? 
So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. I want you to notice what she does, because again, the names matter yet again. And she arrives and they go, hey, isn't that Naomi? Well, Naomi's name means pleasant or sweet. So you can imagine what that sounds like in translation. There's the pleasant one. There's the sweet one. And she says, don't call me Naomi anymore. I want you to call me bitter. That's what Mara means is bitter. In fact, you might remember that in regards to the waters in the wilderness. Mara means bitterness. And notice the reasoning that she gives. Three very strong declarations. Verse 20, the Almighty has dealt bitterly with me. And so you again, you are getting a feel of how much she has suffered, how tragic this has been in her life. In verse 21, the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me. And so again, she seems to be indicating that this is a, recompense for the decision to be in Moab and now look at all the calamity that God has caused against me. In fact, she says in verse 21, I went away full and the Lord brought me back empty. I just don't know that you can underemphasize where she is in her pain when you hear those words. We saw it back in 13, in verse 13. And now three different declarations here in verses 20 and 21 about how she feels about what she has experienced and and what she is going through. And it's a, a setup for the chapter that the rest of this is going to all be about is that really the case is this is so much about the story now that we'll see in the in these four chapters is is that really what god has done is god now just made her empty and she's got nothing left and it's all over for her and she's doomed and all is lost and all hope is gone that's how this first movement wants to leave you is that with this big question is she has been wrecked she has gone through tragedy the pain is just right there on her face and on her lips as soon as someone says her name she says don't call me by that name anymore just call me bitterness instead my life has been a complete calamity the last time you saw me I was full and I am destroyed and empty and have absolutely nothing now terrible time of what she's gone through loss of husband loss of sons loss of hope loss of everything that she thought was so important in bringing about this i think it is important for us to consider as she says these things that while at the moment we don't know if her assessment about these things about god is correct or not it is important to make the point isn't that exactly how we feel When we're going through things like that, it is not hard to relate to Ruth and go, I have felt that way about the calamity has struck me. And what is God doing? And I have lost everything. And how can this be? And this questioning that is going on and how things used to be so good and I had it all. And now I have absolutely nothing. And I want you to feel the parallels of where we're going to see about Job, who is the greatest man of all the East and appears to have everything. He's got the ten children. He's got all the wealth. And he's going to come right out of the gate in the first beginning of the story and lose it all. And here is Naomi 
who was full and doing well, husband, sons, daughters-in-law, things are going great, and it has now just been completely erased. And she has absolutely nothing. One of the things that undoubtedly the book of Ruth is getting at as it opens with this scene is a reminder then that life life outside a relationship with God is absolutely not better. How often I think God is perceived that way, especially how easy it is to think that as Christians, that the grass is greener on the other side. You know, if I'm suffering like this while I'm serving God, then why serve God at all? And I'm just going to go out there and do whatever I want to do. And, you know, they all seem to be happy in the world. and They all seem to be comfortable. And so I'm going to do those things and I'm not going to follow God anymore. But there is this point that's being made immediately that leaving God is going to leave you empty. There is already this connection being made of look at everything that has happened and transpired at this time and how the text is set up for us. It's time to return. It's time to return. It's time to come back. But up to this point, you are experiencing loss and it is not better to leave the covenant relationship with God and leave the covenant promises of God. It's something we talked about in our Bible class this Sunday morning. And we talked about even in our lesson this morning as well and talking about consequences for sins, even in the face of forgiveness. And here it comes about again is that there are consequences that come for making ungodly decisions that we have to deal with is that when we make decisions that God does not want us to make that are violations of what God has told us to do, we should not be surprised when there are earthly consequences that we have to deal with from that. And we can be forgiven by God, but that doesn't erase the difficulties and erase the suffering or erase the consequences that we have to deal with that go on forward from that. And here we see Naomi in that situation. But what is, I think, completely extremely powerful about what we're seeing in this first chapter is has Naomi given up on God? No. For if she had, she would just say, well, I guess I'll just die here in Moab. (laughs) But what she's doing is she is coming back to God and she's telling everybody it was awful being gone. And look at all that I lost. But she comes back to the land, but she hasn't at all given up on God yet. She's expressing what she believes has happened and what God has done to her. And though she is broken and empty and hopeless and it just appears that nothing is going to go right now the rest of the way she still goes back to Judah she still goes back to Bethlehem and that I think is a very important decision that she makes and it is already setting a die being cast for the book about how you can always come back to God Even in the face of all of these prior bad decisions, here she's now turning around and coming back to God. One of the things that I think is so challenging when we go through suffering, when we experience loss, when we go through difficulty, whatever the trial may be that we have, is that it is so hard to maintain a steadfast trust in God in all circumstances. But that is what we're called to do. 
It's already the catalyst to this book of Ruth. It is the catalyst to the book of Job. They open with crisis and tragedy and then ask the question, are you going to still be faithful in all circumstances? And this book opens this way with Naomi. All right, you have now lost everything. I mean, she is telling her daughters-in-law, if you come with me, your life is ruined. You don't want to come with me. I have no hope for you at all. There is nothing for you back in Judah. You need to go your own way. And yet you are seeing within Naomi this picture of a steadfast trust in God to return to the land, to return to God. And that is exactly what we are called to do. In fact, one of the things that is coming out of this book that we see in this chapter and is going to be laid out repeatedly is that even in the face of this disobedience, there is going to be hope. We noted at the beginning in verse one, the days of the judges, those are wicked, dark, evil times. People are not obeying God. They are not seeking the will of God. They are doing what is right in their own eyes. This is the generation that does not know the Lord. And yet, even on the face of all of that, verse 6 tells us something absolutely shocking. God visited His people and brought them food. We studied judges. Did they ever deserve that? (laughs) I mean, we read after all that they're going through and whatever time frame it is, here is the grace of God coming in in the days of the judges and saying, I'm still going to provide for the people. And notice how the end of this first scene unfolds for us and gives us a picture of hope. The very last sentence of verse 22, they came to Bethlehem. Remember, that's the house of bread at the beginning of the barley harvest. Things are about to change. Things are now going to be radically different. That God in His grace and in His kindness is going to start showing His covenant loyalty even in the face of disobedience. And I want you to consider for a moment, not only then is the text giving us God has come back to his people and is providing for them. Not only is it giving us going back to Bethlehem and here the barley harvest is about to begin and she's there just at the right time for the barley harvest to come. But is she alone? God has given her someone. God has given Naomi someone who has expressed extreme covenant loyalty and love to her and said, where you go, I will go. Where you live, I will live. Where you die, I will die. I am going to be with you. And we're already beginning to see that God is shifting the scene in Naomi's life. Because God cares for the afflicted and God cares for his people. And though she has suffered all of this loss, God is already intervening and giving her things that is going to begin to give her hope and begin to turn things in her life. And so it reminds us then about the God that we serve is that there is always the hope and always God's opportunity that he extends to people and says, return to me and enjoy my covenant blessings. 
Don't go your own path. Don't go your own way. Don't choose what seems to be right by human wisdom. Trust in God. Let Him take care of you. Follow in His steps. Obey His teachings. Perform His will. And it is important for us to get a sense that this is what the book is going to begin to set up. Is here we have a scene where a family has gone off to the side and now there is this return and now things are starting to shift. And we're going to begin to read about God's providence as he starts caring for Naomi in some of the most surprising ways. A woman that you would think would now be destitute and with all hope lost is going to experience one of the most immense reversals of biblical history as the story continues to unfold. It leaves us with this principle that I want to leave you with. What we learn already from the first chapter of the book of Ruth is such a critical principle that having God and losing everything else is infinitely better than having everything else and being out of fellowship with God. So often we make decisions based on trying to enjoy all there is in this life and in the process lose God. I'm going to put my effort in my work. I'm going to try to accumulate more possessions. I need to do these things in my life. And so I'm going to set God aside for a time. And I'm going to do what I think I need to do of what's expected of me, of my schedule, of my boss. All these things that are laid upon me that I've got to do. And there has to always be the sense that having God and losing it all is far, far, far better than losing God and having everything that you can get both your hands on in this life. She experiences this and she comes back and recognizes it's time to go back to the land and I may have nothing But at least it's where I belong, where God will take care of me and God will provide and I'll remain in relationship with him than it is to continue to be on the outside. We so often make these kinds of decisions, friends, and I hope that we will think about it is so important to take our suffering, to take the tragedies, to take loss, trials, life challenges and allow it to draw us closer to God. You have to be impressed that Naomi does that. Is that when all hope looks lost, back to the land she goes, back to the God that she served, and everything now, the rest of this book is going to change because of that decision. We must always make that decision. Covenant love to our God in spite of the circumstances, remaining faithful to our God, regardless of how difficult things may get or how prosperous we may be, what we would turn to our God and always rely upon him. I would love to be able to do three more chapters. It's terrible to have to stop right there, but we'll stop right there and wrap it up. And I hope you'll, you'll take some time and look at how the story now unfolds because everything now radically changes in the life of Naomi and what's going to happen to her and how God now provides for her. I hope in this lesson, as we, we sing this song, you'll think about your life. And think about the decisions that you've made that if they show that God means everything, 
uh, reflection in your life that says that I must have God and nothing else. That that's the most important thing. That if I lose God, I've lost everything. God must be at our center. God must be at our core. He must be our everything. That he is all that we need for life. If you need to turn away from a life that has been misled and has not been serving God with all of your heart, that you have not been seeking the Lord your God first and foremost, when you make that decision today, the consequences of sin are just not worth it. And what a gracious God we serve who continues to take us back if we'll just simply turn to him. We turn to him tonight. Won't you come now while we stand?